Welcome to Tech Whisperers, the podcast that takes you inside the playbook of the world's best digital leaders. This is a show for digital and business leaders who are passionate about learning from the industry shapers and market makers. Join your host, Dan Roberts, as he unpacks the unique stories, leadership philosophies, and answer the call moments that define and differentiate the best leaders of our day. Our goal is to help you gain an edge and move you beyond your comfort zone so that you are driving more impact and value for your team, your company, and your career. Let's get into the show and hear from another amazing Tech Whisperer. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Dan, your host, and my guest today is Klaus Jensen, who is known for boldly initiating and leading complex multi-year transformation initiatives. He has a PhD in computer science. He's got 17 patents to his name, and he broke a Guinness World Record as a teenager. Very fascinating. Somehow, he's found time also to publish six books, including the most recent, Digital Transformation for Dummies, which I highly recommend. It's part of the the Four Dummies series at Wiley. Along his, his career journey, he has been a brilliant architect, a CTO, a CIO, a chief digital officer, and now is the chief innovation officer of Teladoc, where he has all those functions, plus R&D, plus product, and more reporting to him. So today I'm excited to unpack Klaus's playbook, as well as his unique leadership mindset and his philosophies. Let's jump in and start off with one of the expressions Klaus frequently uses with his teams, which is related to the pink elephant. So take it away, Klaus. This pink elephant has followed me around for, I think, about, about two decades. It originates all the way back from when I lived and worked in Denmark. So the pink elephant is the pink elephant in the room that we're not talking about. Uh, so, so I found in my career that there's often a scenario where everybody knows that there's an issue, but nobody really wants to talk about it. So I've been talking about this, this pink elephant in the room, as I said, for, for a couple of decades. It, it's actually meaningful, not just in terms of problems but generally in terms of change, because it's uncomfortable to talk about the things that are changing either inside or around us, and we have to face the discomfort and talk about the pink elephant. So I've, I've taken to putting pink elephants on slides and whatnot right, to indicate that there's something here that's a little bit uncomfortable, but let's talk about it. Definitely gets your attention, and you know it's better than the elephant in the room, right? It really, it really pops. So. I mean, my, my little icon is a pink elephant that looks cute, has blue eyes and, and little wings. So it's like some combination of, of pink elephant and Dumbo. Apparently, my teams think that's hilarious because if you look at the background behind me, uh, I actually have a framed picture of a pink elephant that one of my earlier teams gave me uh, as a partner gift. I love it. Well, you've got a lot of great leadership expressions. Another one which I think really speaks to, you know, how do we have a, a prayer of being successful today with the speed and complexity of business? And uh, we can't go it alone. And, and you know that more than anybody. But you talk a lot about the power of us. What does that mean in your world, Klaus? It's about how much more value we can deliver through our combined efforts. It's about how do you make sure that we collectively show up as a team in a way where two plus two becomes much more than four. I sometimes say 27, just to not say five, is really all about taking a leap of faith. I mean, one of one of the first things that I put on the agenda in a conversation I have with a new team when I land in some place is, is that. If we have an agenda of change, we have to start with taking a leap of faith. Says, this can be done. 
Uh, it must be done and it will be done. That's actually a leap of faith because you have to believe that that's something you can actually do. And when you're solving hard problems, then you have to get people to work together to solve the hard problems because that's the nature of the problems. So it, it's just, it requires the belief that it can be done. It requires a different approach, usually, to thinking about the problem. And it certainly requires a different way of working together. So the power of us expresses all of that that more. And I've seen that in play in two two of your past companies, and uh, it's an amazing thing to watch. You know that force multiplier effect from the power of us. And you know, Klaus, I mentioned in your introduction that you have an ability to inspire people in in different ways. You you inspire people to think different. You inspire people to ask a different question. You know, turn the Rubik's cube a half turn and see things from a different light. And I prepare more for you. I think more differently when I'm with you, which, which I appreciate those, those times, but what was your inspiration for that? You know, can you, can you see something in your past that, that helped you get there? I don't think it's one thing. I, I think it's a, it's a number of aha moments that if you watch carefully and if you're willing to look at yourself, uh, you find in your career, I have a handful of the moments that I think brought me to be you know, in a different place than it would have been otherwise. All the way from the choices we made early in our careers in terms of, you know, what we did in college and how we showed up when we got to work. But it is a saying out there, which I think to a degree has been my inspiration at least the last decade. It's been allegedly Henry Ford quote, where he, he said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would sit faster horses. And the, the trick here is to not ask for faster horses. How do you find a different perspective that isn't the faster horse? Take healthcare as an example. Faster horses would be shorter wait times, you know, more access to physicians. Uh, it would be better integration of data. Those are all meaningful statements, but, but are they fundamentally going to transform healthcare? Probably not. I mean, it's going to be more of the same. It's going to be better, but it's not actually a transformational journey. So the trick here is how do we figure out what the right questions are that are not asking for faster horses? I definitely want to double click on Teladoc here in a couple of minutes in terms of how you're rethinking healthcare and how we're going to come out of this with an automobile and not faster horses. But before I get there, I want to get to um, one of my favorite topics with you. And I'm going to preface it by going back to an earlier podcast with Larry Quinlan, who you probably know. And you know, Larry is amazing. And he always talks about everyone needs to be famous for something. You know, and I push back, I'm like, well, it's easier for you as the global CIO of Deloitte with 10,000 people. But he really talked about how every individual has an opportunity to do that. You talk about it similarly. You talk about it in terms of knowing your superpower. So, Klaus, I'm just curious if you can share, I don't know, what this means. What's it look like? How does it elevate people and cultures? What's yours? What's your superpower? It's a good question. So why not tell a story around how I got to realize that A was important and, and B actually what mine wants. So, so this was back in my Edna days. So it's a while ago, maybe six, seven years. And I'd been an executive, a senior executive, you know, for more than a decade at that point. And, and I was pretty sure that I knew what my value proposition was. I mean, what, what is it actually that, that makes me me when I get, get into an environment and the jobs that I take? So I got an executive coach. It was a program. And this woman, wonderful woman, was actually a, a ex-TV and radio producer turned executive coach. So her take on 
coaching was a little different because she basically sat down with you and had a conversation about, let us figure out how to produce you. Right? That was her mindset. How, how do you produce yourself? Which is a whole different story. But what one of the things that she asked you is, or she asked me is, what is your value statement? And I thought I knew. Because I, I immediately said, you know, I turn vision into action. That's my value. She says, no, 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 no. That's your slogan. It's a great slogan. I love it. But it's not your value statement. What is that special something where, really, where you're willing to say, I'm the best X in this team? Tell me what X is. I actually didn't know. Uh, it, it wasn't that I didn't have a lot of things that I knew I was good at. But if I had to pick one, what would then one word actually be? So to me, the value of that became, if, you actually, if you're that clear on what is that one thing you bring to a team that's unique to you, you have all of a sudden the ability to tell people and they will know more about you. You have the ability to rally around that value proposition and choose how to spend your time accordingly. It just in my experience becomes a very different dynamic. So once I found out what mine was, I actually lived it uh, actively ever since. And it took me six months, which is a very, very long time. For me. I, I rarely take six months in, in much of anything. But it actually took me six months to come up with that one word that I was truly comfortable with. So my word is synthesizer. I'm just really good at taking lots of bits and pieces that to other people may not look like it's a whole. I can synthesize and I can spit out a story, a picture, a structure, depending on what I put on my architect hat or my storyteller hat, that represents this is what all those different pieces do. And it's super useful to be that clear on it because it helped me work with my own team and the people around me. Yeah, I think that's allowed you, Klaus, to, um, to see patterns, to uh, articulate visions you know, with clarity. Like I'm looking over your shoulder at this cool whiteboard and it's obviously it gets a lot of work and uh, your big brain at work there, but your ability to then synthesize big complex things really helps your people see your, see your vision. And, and the fact that I know that's my value at lets me make the choices on how I spend my time. So my challenge to our audience is uh, start that process. The holidays are coming up. Start that process. Come up with that word. You know, if you have a coach, great. If not, find a mentor and uh, go through that work because it's so valuable. Plus, I want to talk about Teladoc. Fascinating company. I honestly didn't know the company until you went there, and then I became a, a quick study. But what you're doing there is fascinating. What you do as an organization is really, really important to society and what we refer to as the healthcare system, which we'll get to in a minute. But let's listen in. I've got a, a mystery questioner that uh, is going to help us start to unpack this a little bit. So let's listen in. Tell us who this is and then have some fun with the question. Klaus, as a trained computer scientist who's really made a career in enterprise software, working for organizations like IBM, CVS Aetna, Memorial Sloan Kettering, and seeing many different industries and many different facets of the healthcare industry itself. Why did you choose to come to Teladoc and what do you intend to accomplish at Teladoc? Outstanding question. So Klaus, who, who is that gentleman? It sounds a lot like you and Wayne. Yeah, Dr. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that question. Um, tackle that one, Klaus. Well, I mean, Yulin is famous in, in his own way as, as, as the father of robotic surgery and a bunch of other stuff. You know, I've enjoyed working with him since I've been with Teladoc. So, so why did I join 
I think some of us get to have the luxury when we get to the later parts of our careers of being, I wouldn't say picky, I think that's the wrong word, but being choosy in terms of where we choose to get to spend our time. We spend a lot of hours at work. And for many, slides, most of us, it comes down to that work being meaningful. But what's meaningful to one person is not necessarily meaningful to another person. So what's meaningful to me has for a long time been the ability to leave behind a better team, a better institution, and a better world. And to a lot of people, that's a cliche. But it isn't actually a cliche to me. I am, I've bitten by the healthcare buck. I'm not going to deny it. I mean, I've, I've found, I think, my calling in healthcare when it dawned on me that my family of, of doctors, nurses, etc., had always been telling me when you're going to be doing something useful. I had to do something very useful at a scale that few people get to address through these kinds of roles. So why Teladoc? Look, I mean, I worked in healthcare for CVS Health slash Aetna and you know, CTO for a Fortune 5 company. It's a big job. Why would I go take a, a role with an academic medical center? Totally different trajectory of career. Because they needed someone to think through how do you combine technology science and clinical science to make cancer care about and we've all had cancer close to our families. You know, I remember with my, when my, my granddad died when I was 13 from cancer. I was like, all of a sudden overnight. And, and we've all had those kinds of impacts. So it was time to go try to fix that. Telelog was the same kind of reason, but more tailored around the notion that we've had one particular model of healthcare, which is highly specialized. And which gave us the Memorial Sloan Ketterings of the world, that is where you want to go if you have a difficult case of cancer. But it also made the system somewhat disconnected. It, it sort of eliminated that feeling of us in terms of how we deliver care. And what Teladoc does is based on trying to give people acute episodic, aka gen med, you need a doctor now, so go see a doctor, primary care, chronic conditions, and mental health. That actually makes up about 80% of healthcare, certainly 80% of the effect of healthcare in people's lives. And there's just no one that has put it together in a meaningful fashion, but it's truly holistically integrated. Like we talk about whole person care. Sometimes when the market talks about whole person care, they mean we've got different services and that's the whole person care model. I don't think that's the problem. The problem is how do you actually truly integrate those different services to something that feels like it's for me as a whole person. It's a little different than being able to, to put the pieces together in a care plan. So it's all about transformation to integration. Most people will think of integration as being kind of boring. The peculiar thing about healthcare is integration in healthcare, if it's really a matter to the individual that gets care, is actually transformation. Because for a hundred years, we've not been able to do that. It's something I call the village doctor's paradox that I want the village doctor experience, but I also want modern medicine. And for a century, I have not been able to get over. So good. So good. And we'll uh, definitely want to get into your village doctor paradox, uh, if not here today, through our, our, our blog together. So Klaus, first of all, just doc, Dr. Wang, thank you for taking the time and being so enthusiastic to do this with uh, with Klaus and I. And as you said, Klaus, I, I did some research back in 1990. He was the he started the company that was the pioneer in this whole surgical robotics. They had the first voice-controlled robotic arm. I mean, it's just staggering the kind of people that you have there at your on your team. And 
So Klaus, you know, we're all, maybe not all of us are in healthcare, but we're all patients. So I'm very interested. Is Teladoc a disruptor? Is Teladoc complementary? How should we think about it from that vantage point? It is actually a healthcare strategy, business strategy, and I think philosophy question that you have to answer. What is the role that you want to have in the greater healthcare ecosystem? You see a lot of people talking about the fact that the healthcare system is broke. I think I've indicated that I agree that it needs improvement. But you can draw many conclusions from broken as a word. Some people draw the conclusion I have to replace the system. Interestingly, I would say, based on having worked in all kinds of healthcare, like all parts of healthcare, and I've seen pretty much all parts except for, for the big pharma company, I think that's just moving the problem. If the problem is to create a more meaningful, more personal, more connected healthcare experience, if you truly want to crack the code on the village doctor's paradox, you can't just create a different, distinct system connected to everything else. That doesn't actually solve the problem, it just moves it. It may even make it worse because now you have more disconnected things that aren't talking to each other. So if that's not the answer, then the traditional definition of disruption, which is replacement of old, doesn't apply. It's also not just incremental, because I did say that I think that you have to do a, have a different mindset around integration. I do believe it's transformational. So incremental doesn't really work either. The word I like to use is amplify. We are amplifying the larger healthcare ecosystem. We're adding things that don't exist, but we're also making everybody else's services better and better together. So it's really all about the power of us, but now applied to the healthcare ecosystem not just applied to me. Powerful. These are big topics. These are sometimes hard to get your arms around, you know, and you're known as being a great communicator, great storyteller. You've, you've focused a lot on that over the years. As a profession, we're pretty lousy at it, you know, and we've talked a lot about that <laughs> in this podcast before, but do you have a story, a way of telling the story in terms of what you're all about? I think the way I would describe it is I, I was inspired years ago by something that had nothing to do with healthcare. It's a video, you can find it on YouTube. It's called A Day Made of Glass. Uh, it's produced by Corning, who's a glass manufacturer, and you probably wouldn't know them, but, but if you carry around a smartphone, they were the original inventors slash producers of Gorilla Glass, which is what actually makes the glass in our phone not as breakable as, as glass would normally be. There's a whole story behind how they got to that. But they faced a problem, which was, how on earth do we tell the story about what we do? You can tell a story that has to do with all kinds of stuff around, okay, we produce glass, it has these characteristics, you know, these are the technical specifications, this is how unbreakable it is, and there's all kinds of stuff, right, from cooked ups to, to the gorilla glass in your phones, to what you put in our cars. I mean, that's fine, but it's not something you can relate to, right? It's not humanized. It is a production story by a production company. And it probably won't resonate with people to make them realize how important Corning is to society. So they, they didn't want to do that. They wanted to tell the story of how glass matters in people's lives. So they created the video that showcased a different kind of glass, but in the context of this is how you could live your life. What's interesting about it is that most of what is showcased in that video, while not yet mainstream, actually technique, the technology exists to do what the video says. So they were sort of on the edge of what you would call science fiction. It wasn't truly science fiction because it was sort of current science but taken to a degree of commercialization and embodied in people's lives that wasn't quite real. So they were dreaming a little bit. I think of that as being ambient solutions. 
I, I like the word ambient because it implies that these solutions are just embedded in the environment around you. They're there at your fingertips when you need them, but they're not intrusive when you don't. Isn't that a wonderful vision for what healthcare could be? In addition to solving the village doctor's paradox, making it more meaningful, feeling like you have a partner for life. If on top of that, you can make healthcare solutions increasing the ambience that are just present when you need them, that's a powerful paradigm. Now, it's not easy, and we'll get back to how you get there and, and, and what you actually need to do. But if you want one story about what it looks like, this is a true story. Uh, it happens to do, be from our chronic condition management portfolio. So imagine nobody's identifiable here, so I'm not breaking any rules. Right? But, but imagine that you have a young mother who's a newly diagnosed diabetic, which means it's hard to control. That's actually how diabetes works. It means you you got you to gotta watch it. She's driving down the highway somewhere in the U.S., with a couple of babies in the back of the car, no other adults around. And, and she starts not feeling well, feeling dizzy. If you're an endocrinologist, you will know that that means her blood sugar is probably low. Look, she's still learning how to deal with diabetes. Uh, she is on our diabetes management program. She knows enough to know that it's time to measure my blood sugar. And she measures blood sugar. Turns out that, yeah, her blood sugar is low. It's a potentially dangerous situation. This could actually end really bad. The story then continues as follows. Because that glucose meter is cellularly connected to our backend system, we get the data point in real time. It gets flagged as something that's an anomaly. It gets compared to other values. This is not what it's supposed to be. It gets flagged to a coach. And within five minutes, one of our coaches calls her and says, hey, if you're okay, clearly not. They talk about it. You know, if you have a smartphone, she'll okay, you got a smartphone. If you have Google Maps on, okay, open Google Maps, type in gas station. Is there a gas station close by? Okay, the gas station is three miles away. I'll stay with you. And so, while you drive to the gas station, go in, talk to whoever is there, get something with sugar, and then you'll be fine. And that's how the story ends. Nothing bad happened because there was an ambient presence of a solution to her diabetes condition that was meaningful in context and that took care of her without her needing to be necessarily consciously aware of all the things she had to do. If you can lower the barriers of consumption because these solutions exist in ambient fashion, I do think that will change the game of what it means to consume healthcare. Yeah, it's one of those stories that gives you chills, Klaus, and, and, and your description of ambient, embedded but not intrusive, I mean, that, that, that's a great way to express that. Appreciate you sharing that, Klaus. I mean, we've talked about your superpower as a synthesizer. We've talked about your gift as a storyteller and communicator. I don't want to get too far away without shining the light on something else that makes you really special as a leader. And it's around workforce, people, talent. I want to double click here. I want to sit here for a minute because I see so many talk about it, the challenge, the problem, but I see three approaches by executives today. And uh, I'm just curious if this makes any sense to you. The first approach, I call it the Einstein approach. You know, it's the, uh, it's the insanity, right? Keep doing the same thing. We talk about people are our most important assets, but we just keep doing the same thing. And you know what happens. We, we expect a different result. That's insanity. The second and third approach is build off the chicken and pig fable. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you know, in that fable, the chicken is involved. When it comes to breakfast, the chicken is involved, right? So in the talent space, this is the executive who puts talent on their top five pillars of their strategy, but it's number five. And we never quite get to it, right? So I want to put those people on notice right now because it's on your strategy, but it's not really. And then, then there's the, the third approach, the pig. 
the pig, when it comes to breakfast, is really committed, really committed. And so, Klaus, you know, you're the epitome. When it comes to workforce strategy, people, talent, you are the epitome of committed. So talk about that and just your reaction. Does this make any sense to you, what I'm just sharing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I told you get the analogy. And look, these stereotypes exist, uh, at least in, in some shape or, or form in the environment around us. I think if we go back to what we talked about earlier, if you believe that it requires the power of a multidisciplinary team to solve difficult challenges in healthcare, you have to start thinking about it. how do you not just recruit the right talent? I mean, look, that's hard, but that's still the easy part. Like, how do you actually get that talent to A, take a leap of faith and jump into the breach and solve the hard problems, but do it together? So, so before I go down the route of what I'm trying to do with my own teams, let's link it back to the earlier conversation and talk a little bit about what does multidisciplinary action mean? How broad does it need to be? Much broader than perhaps we think. Because if you actually want to solve these structural problems in healthcare, if it is true that there is a generational challenge and a generational opportunity to truly fundamentally change what care means, let's think about the sciences you need to do that. Clinical science, clearly. I mean, it's not out about it. Like you need clinical science because otherwise you're not doing the right thing and bad results happen from that. I think most people would agree these days that you need technology science. But that technology science is in terms of medical devices, diagnostic equipment, or increasingly digital capabilities that help you all the way from self-help to virtual access to care to you know, fused hybrid care models that fuse the virtual and the physical space, you know, last mile integration, et cetera. You do need technology science to drive modern healthcare. And a lot of people would say, so now I'm done, right? I, I just have to merge clinical and, te and, and technology science. I'm like, not really. There's three more. The third one is logistical science. Because there's a lot of moving parts, right? Just matching people up with the kinds of programs, the kinds of devices, the kinds of resources, the kinds of physicians, the kinds of nurses that actually meaningfully change the equation. That matters. And it matters how you feel about it. So the fourth science is behavioral science. Self-care is healthcare. The more you can motivate people to take care of themselves, the better outcomes you get. And the more you can make sure that your care team resonates with your circumstances, the better outcomes you will get. So that's four. And then you can add data science, data science which is sort of the intelligent underpinning of the other four. Think about that. I basically said, I need clinicians, I need technologists, I need to people that are into logistics, I need people that live and breathe, you know, user experience design and behavioral science, and I need all the data scientists, and I need them to work together to solve a hard problem. That's not an easy task. It's not impossible, it's just not easy. So make sure I get these right. There's five sciences that you're integrating, clinical science, technology science, logistical science, behavioral, and data science. That's a good list, yes. That's a good list. That's a great list, yeah. Because, you know, to help kind of unpack this whole Klaus as, I'm going to call it leader as teacher. I pulled uh, someone from your past who was a partner in crime with you and doing some amazing things. It's going to go back to uh, back a few years. So let's listen in to this mystery questioner and uh, tell us who this is and, and tackle the question. What is your overall philosophy to developing highly technical subject matter experts with aspirations of becoming dynamic technical leaders? Yeah, so Damon Carter, HR business partner to you when you're the CTO at Aetna. 
you two accomplished so many great things together. He still raves about you. But tackle Damon's question. It was a question he and I talked about many times. And, and in fact, he ended up using some of the things that we did in my organization as at least inspiration for other things he suggested for other parts of the organization. It, it comes down to, I think, an experience and a belief. So we'll do the experience first. This was one of my aha moments. Remember, I said I had like you know, these five handful of, of aha moments in my career. I got thrown into a C-level role, a chief architect role at the largest financial institution in Denmark at the rival age of 32, which is not when you're supposed to get a C-level role, but I, I sort of just fell into it. And nobody really knew what a chief architect did at the time. So it was one of those where, hey, we need a favor. What favor do you need? You need to be our new chief architect. Say, what's that? We have no idea. Go figure it out. So I figured it out, I thought. And, and I spent 2000, 2001 doing all the right things in terms of learning about you know, what that meant to be a chief architect, architect of discipline, stood up frameworks, you know, methodologies, did role descriptions, got people put into solution and enterprise architect roles. And it sounds like the recipe, but all the things you're supposed to do. Uh, and you get to 2002 and we're humming, except we're not. Because people just make weird decisions. Well, why would you make that decision? Because that's what the methods say. But if you follow that pattern, you get to a scenario where this software module is going to call itself like 17,000 times on the certain services. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's, that's kind of a problem. So we're going to have to think about how your performance optimized. But, but why do you do it that way? Because that's what the methods say. It was like, you got to scratch your head and say, you, you can choose two things, right? You can say, okay, pick the one person to be the architect. Or you can say, I did something wrong because these are smart people. So what did I do wrong? That means that we're in this situation so that it doesn't coming out the way it's supposed to be. Look, I'm self-reflective enough to acknowledge when I did something wrong and I actually done something incomplete. It wasn't that I'd done something wrong and things I'd done. It was what I hadn't done. That was the problem. And what I hadn't done was take people on a learning journey. So, so we talked about the method and the structure and you know all the things we were supposed to do, but we hadn't actually changed how we think. So we were going by the method, not by the unconsciously competent understanding of what it meant to architect and design large complex systems and solutions. So, so at that moment in time in 2002, basically went to my peers and said something along the lines of I screwed up. Because it wasn't quite the words I used, but, but it was implied that I messed it up. And that I thought I knew how to fix it, but they sort of had to decide whether they were going to let me or not. And I, I was willing to get fired on the spot and say I screwed it up. Right? So you can choose whether you're going to let me fix it or not. They let me fix it. So, so apparently I'd done enough good things that I was forgiven and allowed to fix it. The fix was the first learning program that I ever established that wasn't training. Because that wasn't my problem. I could train people to kingdom come right, in the methodology, and it just wasn't the problem. Uh, it was the internalized learning of what it means, why it means, and the whole jumping into the breach and do battle understanding of what it actually meant to have the roles that people had. So it's still have a different kind of work. And it is the first time back in 2002, and, and then you know ran that at Danske Bank. It was not as comprehensive as it would have been later, but it was, it was the moment where I realized that you need a learning program that lets people actually internalize the thought model behind what it is you're trying to do. 
So that's the root of a philosophy that believes that learning is important. And that as a senior executive, one of my most important duties is to sponsor and establish not training programs, other people that, but learning programs. And it's where I spent a fairly significant amount of my own personal time to actually run a structured program, which it is by now, right? It's like a playbook uh, that takes you through five topics that are centered around how do we change our perception of what we do, how do we change how we think, and how do we change how we influence people around us. And the textbook will tell you that we have to change how we think first, and then we can change what we do. And, and in practical terms, that never worked for me. So I've always done it the other way around. We start talking about how our jobs change, and then we'll sort of lead ourselves into what that means in terms of thinking differently and, and influencing differently. So, you know, we can talk about the components of that, but there's this whole structured program approach I've taken to not training, but learning. And, and Klaus, that's something I really want our leaders to really pay attention to because it's the step that we skip, you know, in today's busyness and go, go, go. But I think it's at our own peril. And not only do you have the commitment, not only do you get jump in to these learning programs, I think when I talked to you back in the middle part of this year, you'd already logged more frequent flyer miles <laughs> than anybody I knew because you were going out to every site every location and leading these learning sessions. That, do I have the, is my memory right? Yeah, your memory is correct. Look, it's all about taking a leap of faith. I mean, I, I live my own values. So, so my leap of faith is if I believe that the learning program is important and I believe that this is a crucial value to my organization, I have to be willing to jump into a plane and fly to my major hubs and lead a, in this case, a one-day conversation about the topic of this semester. Right? So this is a structured learning journey. So think semesters, and there's like five of them. Each semester starts with a one-day kickoff, which is a structured conversation. Yes, you know, I bring slide, but it's more about the dialogue. And if you witness two, you'll see that they're actually different because they depend on, on the dynamic interaction in the room. So it's very much joint learning. I learned something from it as well. So if it's that important, and I truly believe it, then my leap of faith is I'm willing to spend my time going to all of my major hubs, which is, is like seven or eight of them, and basically do this as well as run a virtual session where I also do a kickoff for the team that can't be in person. So spend a lot of time in, in airplanes on six-month cycles because the semester is about six months. Yeah, it's and, and embedded in there is, is an ongoing. It's not a one-and-done, check the box, move on. It's, 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 it's not a one-and-done. The philosophy behind the learning program is that we spend a semester learning. That's the kickoff, and then there's a structured learning program where you can start practicing some of the things we talked about. Then you spend the next semester, you learn the next topic, but you practice the topic that we had in the prior semester. And in the third semester, you expect it to be proficient. So you slowly raise the bar, what it means to be the top talent in the organization, what it means to be a technical leader, you raise the bar. Uh, and in the third semester, you're supposed to be proficient in what we did in semester two. You're practicing what we did in semester, sorry, in semester one. You're practicing what we did in semester two, and you're learning the new topic of semester three. And you can sort of continue to roll that forward. So there's like five topics I know are important, but then I'll adapt beyond the five topics as the organization progresses. And that actually works very well. And the five topics that I usually run as a playbook, it starts with digital transformation because that's the whole external force and uh, power of bringing the sciences together changes the equation. 
It continues with technical leadership, which is very different from management. This is all about how you step up and lead, not about how you manage people. Technical leaders tend to lead through vision, conviction, and technical mastery, very different from people managing. The third topic is innovation. The fourth topic is storytelling, those stories. There's a lot of power in stories. And the fifth topic is sort of, you know, how do you generate influence to network? Those five things are things that you won't actually usually get in whatever professional education you've taken. There are exceptions, but, but most tradecraft schools, whatever they might be, colleges, universities, or other kinds of education institutions, don't give you that. It's something that you learn the hard way through trial and error and through learning in your career. What if we could synthesize at least some of the key questions and put them in front of people early or late in their careers and just help them learn? Yeah. I've seen this in action. I've seen people take that leap of faith with you. I've seen you, I'm not going to name the organization, but you initiated 45, I'm going to use the term soft skill initiatives. And the team went on that journey with you and you had hundreds of the most technical people in the company reporting into you at that time, architects, engineers, brilliant people. And the EQ aspects maybe weren't as strong, but, you know, (laughs) fast forward, you know, I remember checking in with you two years into it because we were, we were partnering on some of those things. And I'm like, how's it going? And I don't know if you remember your answer, but you're like, my people are showing up different. We're getting invited to the first meeting. We're influencing at the table. We're bringing a point of view. And by the way, they're as technically savvy as they've always been because they do that on their own. Is that, is that am I hitting the right? The right and you, that, that's the right gist of it. Look, I, I don't think I need to teach people how to be great professionals. They know how to be great professionals. That's why the church did and then basically the background that they have what i can possibly help them is become more than that and step to step into a different kind of, of leadership i think the the most important metric for whether you're succeeding with a learning program is what people tell you when you're far enough into the learning program and as long as you have people telling you things like this is the most meaningful learning i've had in 10 years this fundamentally changed the way I look at myself and at my job. This has helped me in so many ways in terms of how I work with people around us. When you get that kind of feedback, you know you're onto something. And that is more than just another training program. It's actually different compared to what people get in other places. No, it's true. I've heard a lot of your people say that it's changed their whole career mentality, trajectory. Um, and one thing people don't realize, Klaus, is I mentioned in the introduction, you've written, you've published half a dozen books four of them in the in the four dummy series with Wiley and uh, highly recommend the last one was I think it was was it the digital transformation for dummies yeah that was the last one I've always been intrigued by the reason why you write books it's not like you've got a lot of free time but why do you write books Klaus I do I write books people write books for lots of reasons I write a book when I have a story to tell and primarily a story to tell to my own team my own company my own organization that is the exact opposite of why most people write books. Right? Most people write books because they want to share something with people outside. I'm like, well, I don't want to start with writing books about things that are truly important to the internal conversation. Yes, I will use them for external communication as well, but it's a way of codifying something really important and succinct that represents part of the learning journey. And by choosing to write a book, I'm also forcing my as possible on the messaging. I actually like the for dummies format. I don't write big ones. It's like 48 page books. Because the forcing function of the format, the relative shortness of the amount of content and the style of that 
leads you down the path of, you know, here's another great quote, I'm, I'm sorry I wrote such a long letter, didn't have time to write a shorter one. <laughs> and that, that, that's actually what that kind of process forces you to do. It forces you to synthesize and condense what is it truly that's important around this topic and how can you express it in a way that's hopefully contributing. So that's why. I highly recommend them. I'm not going to ask you what the next one is, but I know you've always got two or three in the in, in your head. And uh, one thing I want to pivot to as we kind of wind it down here, Klaus, you and I are both big on paint it forward. We're both big on what we call here tech for good. And so, as you know, we've we've um, made a commitment of $125,000 of scholarships to our Tech LX leadership program, which we've really enjoyed working with a lot of your folks in that program. You have the ability here to gift a seat in that program, Klaus, to one of your nonprofits that you participate with. So is there somebody that comes to mind that you think could leverage that, that scholarship? Yeah, I'm going to pick Girls Who Code. Awesome. Um, there's a reason for that. I strongly believe, and I always believed, that gender equality is so important to the technology community. And, and there are so many, you know, ranging from barriers to just perceptions traditions, et cetera, in, in technology, we get better solutions and better results. And by the way, we get better work environments right? when we have more balanced environments that we all go to work. I've seen the choices people make right? in, in my own personal life, uh, in the opportunities I've had to try to help people. And one of the things we have to recognize is that these kinds of patterns are established early in your life. Right? So if you can actually get to the point where you help someone to figure out, is this me or is it not me in a supportive fashion early, aka in your forming school years. I think we have a potential to change the ecosystem dynamics of who chooses a technology career and why. And then there's a there's a personal angle to this story, which I'll share as well, because, right? you know, I got two daughters. My youngest is actually technology minded. But she's always sworn that I'm just never, ever a dad going to get your kind of job. Right? So I'm just not going to do computer things because right? your job is all you do is emails and meetings. I don't think that's boring, but it comes down to what you think your value is because I'm a storyteller, so it's what I do. But to her, that's boring. Whereas tinkering with stuff, actually, she likes that. And she figured out in high school that she likes tinkering with technology. But she had sworn off computer science. That was just never going to happen. But she did get just enough right, impression in high school of she took a computer science class, which taught her a little bit about computers and coding. She went off to college uh, in Boston. And she's now picked her major, which is a combination major of computer science and philosophy. It's not actually a double major, it's a combination. So she didn't give up on her deep belief that there's a human component to technology that she didn't think her dad was necessarily expressing through meetings and emails, so, so that wasn't cool. She also didn't give up on the itch that she really wants to do some hands-on technology work. So, so that's her choice. I think she's a good example of the fact that if you expose people to choices and options in a different way, sometimes they end up in a different path than they thought they would. So I'll leave, I would just brown out that, that part with that personal story. I love that story. I've never heard that before, Klaus. And I know your daughters are brilliant uh, and I wish them well. And Girls Who Code is an amazing organization. We've had other others gift scholarships to them. So uh, it's a great, great call. And Klaus, our time is kind of winding down here. But the good news is we're going we're gonna to chat some more offline. We're going to write a blog and post that next week on CO.com. 
And uh, I want to go more into those five sciences. Very intrigued by kind of unpacking that with you. I want to talk more about the village doctor paradox and what that means. And uh, we didn't have a chance to unpack your chief innovation officer role today. So I want to do that in the article too. But, you know, Klaus, we've done this many times. Always a joy. I always look forward to it. And uh, thanks for, for being a, a great teacher, building learning organizations, and uh, sharing your wisdom with our audience. My absolute pleasure. And thanks for the opportunity. Developing a robust pipeline of future-ready IT leaders who know how to show up and engage differently is paramount to success today. If you would like to learn more about the Tech LX Leadership Development Program that Dan talks about in the podcast, we invite you to visit techwhisperers.net. Equip your workforce with a new mindset and skill set needed to maximize impact, increase engagement, and build a world-class talent magnet brand. You've been listening to Tech Whispers, inside the playbook of the best digital leaders, a Woolette and Associates podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show as this helps us connect the world's best digital leaders with those who aspire to learn, grow, and thrive in this amazing profession. Thanks for listening. Until next time.